0: Some of you have heard me maybe tell this story before, but one of my favorite theologians and and one of the theologians that's made one of the biggest impacts on my life is a guy named Dallas Willard. Um, And Dallas Willard was a fascinating guy. He's he's now dead, Um, but he was unlike a lot of other theologians. Uh, One, he was not a local church pastor, and two, he also never taught at a seminary as a seminary prof. Um, Instead, he taught philosophy at USC in Los Angeles and and taught there for like 48 years. And then kind of almost as a hobby, he wrote books on the side about spiritual formation and discipleship, and and they're some of the best books that you could ever read on those subjects. I I would highly recommend his book called Renovation of the Heart. Um, Also, he has a book called The Great Omission. Uh, which is about discipleship and just absolutely fantastic stuff. Uh, One time, Dallas Willard was speaking at a university, and after his talk, there was like this Q&A time. And a student got up and asked him, hey, what is your daily quiet time like? And I'm sure you guys have heard that language before, the language of, of a quiet time, uh, especially if you grew up in like an evangelical church setting. The, the idea behind a quiet time basically is that you have a, a time set aside every day, probably in the morning, where uh, you read the Bible and you spend time in prayer and, and maybe you journal or do something like that. But it, but it's just intentional time that you have set aside for those purposes. And and so for somebody who has written a great deal about the inward spiritual disciplines and spiritual formation and discipleship and all of those things, um, this, this student gets up and asks him, you know, what does that look like for you? And, you know, a criticism of just the idea of having a quiet time is that sometimes it can be framed in such a way as, as so it seems like I have this time in the morning that I've set aside for Jesus and I get that over and done with and then I go about my day, right? So, so I do my Jesus thing and then I go about my regular life rather than prayer being something that's kind of interwoven throughout your day and uh, going to Scripture as you encounter different challenges throughout your day and just kind of living a life with Christ, rather than I have these moments that I give to Him, but then everything else is kind of my time. So so that would be maybe a criticism of that kind of um, quiet time mindset. And so he asked Alice Willard this question, and at first, uh, and, and Dallas Weir was probably in his 70s at this point in time, at first he seems a little bit confused by what this guy is asking him. And he asks a few follow-up questions like, what do you mean uh, by quiet time? And, and finally they arrive at the question of, what does your spiritual routine look like in the morning? What does your spiritual routine look like in the morning? And I imagine this student was probably looking for something like what I mentioned a few minutes ago. Like I wake up and I have my coffee and, and then I figure out where I'm at in my Bible reading plan and I do my Bible reading and then I have a prayer time and I journal my prayers and all of those kinds of things. And so, so Dallas Willard thinks about this for a minute. And he said, well, I, I wake up and I just kind of lay in my bed. And once I'm fully awake, I, I, I just, I lay there and I begin to pray the Lord's Prayer, but I I pray it slowly, and I just kind of walk through it meditatively, like phrase by phrase. Our Father, stop. And and then I just, I, I, I think about what does it mean that God's our Father? What are the implications for God being my Father? How does that relate to my earthly Father? What does that mean that my father's in heaven? And, and, and so he kind of walks through the prayer and he said, This is what I do most mornings. And then I get up and I, you know, get dressed and eat breakfast and go about my day. But throughout my day I'm reading the scriptures and I'm praying. This isn't the only time I have, but but this is what I do every morning. And I thought this was fascinating that that his kind of Morning spiritual routine had to do with basically meditation on Scripture, basically taking something like the Lord's Prayer and and rolling it over in His mind and really, really wrestling with what is this and what does this mean? I grew up in a church where you would never hear the Lord's Prayer prayed as a part of a worship service. Um, Instead, the Lord's Prayer was really taught more as or seen more as a like a model for prayer. So like when you pray, you should take the Lord's Prayer and the individual elements of the Lord's Prayer and you should structure your own custom prayer that's kind of built on that format. So, so, depending on what kind of tradition you grew up in, um, you've probably encountered the prayer in either of those ways. Either it's just something that's kind of wrote and prayed in, in services each week, or it's, it's a model, it's a structure that you should follow when you are praying. And, and it, you know, after all, in verse 9, Jesus says, like, he uses the word like. He says, when you pray, pray like this. But here's what I started to realize. Most people don't pray like this, right? If this is a model for prayer, this is not how most of us pray. Um, instead, when we pray, most of us essentially say, Dear God, here's everything I want or need, and here are the people around me who are sick. Amen. That's how most of us pray. And this is a bit of a reduction, but it's not totally untrue to say that many of us approach prayer not unlike being a young child at the mall, sitting on Santa's lap, going, here's all I want for Christmas, bye, right? Here's everything that I perceive that I want or need, now God, here, do something with all of that, see you later. And so while I do think it's completely appropriate for us to pray this prayer as, 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 as a model and, and, and also to pray this prayer in this form, the way that we read it, I think both of those things are appropriate. I also think the Lord's Prayer should shape the way that we pray, not just what's in your prayer, but, but kind of the tone of your prayer and, and, and the heart behind your prayer. So what I want to do this morning is I want to break this down into chunks so that we can begin also to consider how we synthesize this into our lives. So, so first, before we get into the text of the prayer, let's consider what Jesus says beforehand. First of all, Jesus lived in a culture that valued public prayer. Um, If you have ever been to a Muslim country today, or if you've ever, you've probably seen this on the news or in movies, you know that in most Muslim countries today, there are multiple daily calls to prayer. Public prayer is a big part of just Eastern culture in general. It's not just a Muslim thing. It was very much a Jewish thing during the time of Jesus. It was normal that people would gather together daily in synagogues and at temple to pray This was not an uncommon thing at all. But as Jesus begins, right, what does he say? He says, you don't have to be in the temple or synagogue, but if you are, if you are in public when you are praying, Jesus points out that there are some people who, when it is time to pray, they see it as their opportunity to impress other people with their piety, so in typical Jesus fashion, what he recommends us doing is, is well, I mean, obviously he's far more concerned with the heart than he is with the external actions. We talk about that a lot. He's looking for people, though, who have like an audience of one when they're praying. When, when it comes time to pray, to pray the question is, who, who are you really speaking to here? Right? Who, are you, who are you really hoping will hear you? or see you? Who are you really hoping to impress? Is your goal to talk to God, or is your goal to be seen talking to God? As far as Jesus was concerned, this was something that for many of the scribes and Pharisees, for the religious elite, there was um, something to be said for kind of your public persona, your public piety The fact that other people could look to you, maybe, and and see some kind of a manifestation of how holy or how righteous that you were. But Jesus, who saw the heart, recognized that most of that was bunk, right? He calls them at times things like whitewashed tombs and and cups that are clean on the outside, but they're dirty on the inside. And, And so anyone else kind of looking at it goes, oh, wow, But the one who actually sees all things looks at it and says, this is horrible. This is complete hypocrisy. So he warns us against hypocrisy in a number of ways. We talked the other night at our Ash Wednesday service about his warnings regarding fasting, that that you could easily take something that is beautiful and is meant to draw you closer to God, and and you could twist it in the hopes that other people will be impressed with you and and how holy you are. And oh, man, what, what a... What a humble person to give up certain things to try to grow closer to God. And so so you can take these beautiful things that God has given us so that we can know him and communicate with him and converse with him and grow closer to him. and, And you can actually twist them so that you receive worship rather than him receiving worship. So Jesus says, when you pray, your audience should only be one person, and when you pray, it is not important that other people see you doing this, even though there's nothing wrong or sinful with praying publicly. He doesn't condemn that outright. But, but notice this. Notice it says God already knows what you need. So, so it's not necessary for you to kind of blah, because He already Knows. There's this interesting passage in Romans 8, um, which, quick commercial, the Sunday after Easter, we are going to begin a series on the book of Romans that we're going to be in for most of this year. I'm really excited about this, really looking forward to this. Man, Romans is like a, uh, I mean, it's obviously the Word of God, but it is like a foundational book when it comes to Christian doctrine and theology. And it's a book that uh, we, we know bits and pieces of. We know like the popular soundbites from Romans, but uh, we're really going to dig into it deeply together. And I'm really looking forward to that. In Romans 8, though, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. "...and he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God." So Paul says, even when you don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit of God that is within you is interceding for you. And that's kind of this mysterious thing, but I do think it relates to God's omniscient nature, the fact that He is all-knowing, the fact that He sees your heart and He knows what's inside of you. Have you ever felt at a loss When it comes to prayer, have you ever felt like I don't have the words or, you know, sometimes in a stereotypical way, people will will say like, man, I feel like my prayers are hitting the ceiling, like they're not going anywhere. Have you ever felt like that? God knows what you need better than you know what you need. But also notice emphasis on the word need. We, just like my seven-year-old, Have a very hard time differentiating between what we want and what we need, right? That's not just something that kids do, that's something that we do as well. We have a hard time figuring out what are my actual needs and what are my wants. And wouldn't you love, wouldn't you love for your kids to like rest in the notion? that you know more than they do? Wouldn't you love for them to rest in the notion that you have more wisdom than they have? It's important for us to understand. Sometimes we pray for things that don't come to pass, and we naturally think, Lord, where are you? Don't you hear me, God? God, what are you doing? But if He is God... If He's the creator of all things, if He truly is all-knowing, and if He is good, then we need to learn to rest in the notion that He knows more than we do. With your kids, you tell them to do something, or you let something happen, or when you don't let something happen, what if your kids just knew that you weren't doing those things arbitrarily? Right? or that you weren't just doing those things because of your own selfish desires, but from a place where you can actually see how things will come about and what will happen as a result of certain actions, because you've been there before and you've done it before. Listen, if God is not only our Father, but if He's also our Father who is in heaven What kind of wisdom do you think comes from that vantage point? Now, notice after addressing the prayer to our Father in heaven, the first thing that Jesus tells us to do is to worship God, right? Hallowed be your name. If this is a model for your prayer life, my guess would be that this is the very first way that your prayers deviate from this model, More than likely, your prayers do not revolve around the worship of God and like extolling the name of God. It's like step one, most of us have missed this. Prayer is first and foremost an act of worship. If our prayers aren't first and foremost to worship God, then he is no different than Santa Claus, right? Then he is just the genie that we're going to in the hopes that we're going to get certain things out of him. Um... You know, no one sits on Santa's lap and says, you know, Santa, I just want to really want to use the majority of my time here to just tell you how great I think you are. You know, man, this is a big undertaking. You, you know, all the toys and the going around the world and whatnot. I mean, that's a big deal. I mean, it's really amazing how, you know, know, why do you choose to, I mean, we're so undeserving. You know, no one does this, right? We just tell him what we want. We tell him what we think we need one of my cousins told us that their kids got new stockings this past year for Christmas and they were all real upset because the new stockings that they got were smaller than the stockings that they had before. And so they were real upset because, uh, they couldn't hold as much stuff at Christmas. So, so never mind all of the awesome things that I've gotten at Christmas in years past. Um, I'm only concerned about what I will get in the future. And we do the same things. We quickly forget about all of the good things God has given us, all of the grace that he's given us. We quickly forget the gospel, and we only think about the future and the unknowns of the future. And I don't know how this is going to happen. and I don't know how this is going to turn out. And I don't know where this resource is going to come from. And, and, and we forget. We are quick to forget. And we are slow to trust for some reason, we are slow to truly believe that he is good and that he will come through. He has come through. He's not only come through once for us, he's come through again and again and again and again and again. And even if all he had done was give his son Christ to die for us so that we could ultimately be reconciled to him eternally, if that was it and everything else was just horrendous and terrible, it would still be enough. But that's not it for us, right? Because we have families and we have jobs and we have food and we have clothing and we have shelter and we have all of these things. And for most of us, it's not even at base level, right? We're, we're like up the ladder a pretty good bit. So God has been incredibly good to us. And yet we so quickly forget it. And we so quickly move on to fear and worry and anxiety about what we don't have. That's something we all do whereas we should be so like awestruck by Him and so bowled over by His grace that we see prayer as an incredible, unbelievable privilege and thus have set as our primary desire just telling God how great He is, how amazing He is, how glorious He is, giving Him our honor and devotion. Now, That naturally leads into the second way that our prayers probably deviate from this model. And that is that we would pray that his kingdom would come. And this illuminates for me the fact that this is actually even more, maybe, than just a model for prayer. Here's what I mean. This prayer can seem a little bit out of place in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. If you recall, we've pretty much gone from all of these, you've heard it said, but I tell you statements of Jesus, to suddenly he's going, here's a model for prayer, right? But, but in this, there is, there is a bit of a you've heard it said, but I tell you element to what's going on here. Because he's saying, you guys know all about prayer, You see prayer every day in the public sphere. You see these seemingly incredibly pious people, these incredibly religious and holy people who are praying and their prayers are, you know, outstanding and amazing and and, and kind of over the top in some senses. But, But let me tell you how to really pray. It's a recontextualization, isn't it? When you pray, don't worry about it whether or not other people can see you. And in fact, worry about whether or not God can see you. And, and God can see you even if you go into a closet in complete secrecy, in complete privacy. He is there with you. He hears you, He sees you. What he said, or what we have said about the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is both reminding us that we desperately need Him, and, and, and that we can do nothing without Him. So we need to give Him our faith and devotion completely. But also, this is showing us what it looks like to be like Christ, right? What it looks like to begin to pattern our life after Him and to model our life after Him. And that includes external actions as well as internal motivations. So, so here, I think we aren't just being told to pray for the kingdom of God to come. like We're also being shown that the primary desire of our hearts should be for God's kingdom to come. Like in, in the wake of Jesus' incarnation, it, 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 what Scripture tells us is that we've, we've gotten a little foretaste of the kingdom of God. We, we've seen a little piece of it in that we know we've been justified before Him. We know that because of His sacrifice, we have been forgiven, but there will come a day when we will experience it in its fullness. And, and I think part of what Jesus is pointing us to here is, is that something you actually desire in your heart? Right? Is that something that you long for now? As C.S. Lewis said, is your longing to see everything sad come untrue? Because if your longing is to see everything sad come untrue, then the only way that that happens is if God's kingdom comes in its fullness, in its entirety. So we're busy praying for financial needs or this person's illness or this relational problem. And and guys, there's nothing wrong with that. Don't hear me bashing that in any way. But the bigger picture is that if God's kingdom comes here as it is in heaven, then all of those things are non-issues, right? Right? Because in God's kingdom, there is no illness. We say this all the time. In God's kingdom, there is no hunger. In God's kingdom, no one's dying. In God's kingdom, these things that kind of plague our lives and the trials that we walk through in life, those things are not there. I think this is a big part of why Jesus did so many miraculous things during his time on earth. He, as we say often, he wasn't just walking around saying, here's who I am. He was also showing people what the kingdom of God was like. He would say the kingdom of heaven is coming near, repent and believe the good news. And and then he would heal somebody. And then he would feed thousands of people. And then he would bring someone back from the dead. And in all of these things, he's showing us what the kingdom of God is like. So it was a significant part of your prayer life, praying Not later, God. Now. Right? Come now. It is the ultimate solution to everything that is wrong in our world. The solution is not a new president or the same president. The solution is not more money. The solution is not better medical science. The solution is not more technology. The solution is God's kingdom in its fullness. And for many of us, it's not even on our radar as a thing that we should be praying for daily. And we could spend the whole time, by the way, talking about that one line, talking about God's kingdom. Here's the last thing I will say. God has already promised that His kingdom will come. So so when we're praying, we're, we're not trying to win Him over to the idea to send His kingdom, right? He has promised that that will happen. Read to the end of the book, you will see prophecy concerning what is to come, a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. So what are we praying for here? We're praying, Lord, come quickly. Lord, come quickly. Come soon. Because when His kingdom comes, then His will and only His will will be done on earth. So that's a lot of stuff right there. And we haven't even gotten to me. We haven't even gotten to you. We haven't gotten to grandma's knee yet, right? We've really only worshiped God by honoring His name, by enunciating our desire to live fully in His kingdom. So prayer, listen, prayer does not primarily revolve around me, Prayer does not primarily revolve around you. Prayer revolves around God. So now, here's what I need according to Jesus. Here's what I should be praying for, for me, according to Jesus. First of all, he says, I need daily bread. I think this line, this idea of daily bread, should remind us of the Israelites in the wilderness. When God provided manna for them every morning, it would just appear on the ground. They would go out and collect it. If you remember, he wouldn't even let them like hoard it. They could only go out and collect what they needed for the day. And then what did they have to do? They had to trust that he would do it again the next day. This was a big problem for them. Like they wanted to get as much as they could possibly get. We want to do the same thing, right, by the way because we're not sure if we're going to have it in the future. It's like a survival instinct that we have, but it also is a lack of faith. Now, can you imagine having seen uh, the parting of the Red Sea and the armies of Pharaoh decimated and water come from a rock and, and all of this stuff and then like worry about where the bread's going to come from the next day? After all of those miraculous things, can you imagine that? I think most of us think, man, if I had seen those things with my eyes, then I would rest easy knowing my God is going to take care of me. And yet he has given his only son for you. That's not fake. That's not a fairy tale. That's a real thing that has happened. And yet we lay in our beds at night worrying about what is going to transpire in our lives and in our world, about the needs that we perceive that we have. How are these things going to work out? Where are these things going to come from? What if we were able to rest in the Lord fully? What if we were able to trust Him fully? So these are the true things that we need. These are not luxuries. These are not... Just stuff that I want. It's what I need. And it's not just food. It covers a whole host of things. I think when we say, Lord, give me my daily bread, it's not just do I have food to eat. It's, it's do I have the most basic needs met, right? Am, am I like breathing in and out on my own? You know, do I have clothing to wear? One of the things that Jesus says over and over again is that your father knows what you need. He's clothing birds and he's clothing flowers and he's clothing the grass of the field and you're worried about yourself. So that's number one, I need daily bread. Secondly, I need forgiveness. So we've talked a lot about this, but the fancy word here is justification. I need to be made right. Before God, because ultimately it doesn't matter if I'm getting daily bread if I'm not made right before God. Jesus is the only path to forgiveness. You can be a good person, that's not good enough. You can try to be righteous, but you can never be as righteous as God. Our forgiveness comes only through faith. And here's the thing, while God's grace is sufficient to cover a multitude of sins, a lifetime of sins, his desire for us is that we should continually be putting sin to death, not just praying, God, forgive me, and then just continuing on in our sin, but praying, Lord, forgive me, and then actively seeking to move past our sin. So forgiveness is not carte blanche to do whatever you want. Instead, forgiveness is your green light to actively attack the negative things that remain in you because you now aspire to be like Christ. So how can I emulate him? How can I put these things into practice in my life? And and what has to be exorcised from my life in in order that I may take on his nature? This should be the natural result of anybody who worships anything. Anybody who worships anything ultimately seeks to be like the one whom they worship. If you worship someone, your natural tendency is that. So do you worship Jesus Or do you worship something else? Third, Jesus tells us, I need to forgive other people. I need forgiveness, and then I need to forgive other people. This is where many of us get off the boat, too, by the way. This is the thing that many of us want to ignore and just go about our business. But this is key. If you want to be like Christ, you will never be more like him than when you are forgiving other people. And as we see in verses 14 and 15, if we want Him to forgive our sins, then it is essential that we forgive the sins of other people. Here's what I think that means. If you are unwilling to even consider the notion of forgiving someone who has wronged you, then you have completely missed the gospel, right? I'm not saying it's easy suddenly for you to forgive people, but if you are completely unwilling to even consider the notion of forgiving someone who has wronged you, then do you in any way understand what Jesus has done for you? Because the gospel says that you have wronged God. The gospel says that you were enemies of God, that I was an enemy of God. We disobeyed, we turned our back on him, we followed our own path. But in his mercy, he sent Jesus to die and rise from the dead because through his actions, you've been given forgiveness and you've been given new life. And if you grasp that, how could you ever say, that's just for me? It's not for anyone else, right? That's just for me, but I'm going to keep on hating the people who do bad things to me. No, the gospel, if it is truly within you, changes you. It transforms you, right? It molds you. It's not this instantaneous thing where now, man, I'm a completely different person. I don't struggle at all with the things I used to struggle with. It is progressive, but it is efficacious. If it is in you, it is doing work. It is transforming you and changing you. So if you have no desire whatsoever to forgive people around you, then it doesn't sound like you are being changed. And and here's the thing. One of the things that the scriptures are clear about is that faith is evidenced by fruit. Faith isn't just something you claim. If faith is real, then there should be something coming out of you. That is evidence of what you say is in you. That was Jesus' problem with the scribes and Pharisees. Like, your external actions are all of these pious religious things, but yet what's in you is not that. So this is all fake stuff. What Jesus is interested in is, is that the real things would be coming out of you. What we want to do is we want to live an unchanged life, but yet project the appearance of change. And there is one person who truly sees through all of that stuff, and that is God. So unforgiveness is the fruit of a lack of faith. It's not the fruit of a vibrant faith. It's not the fruit of a growing faith. So for most of us in this room, who do you need to forgive? Who do you struggle to forgive? What would that look like? Have you blocked it out? Have you ignored it? Have you not even considered it? When you consider who Christ is and what he has done for you, does that in any way soften your heart to the notion of humbling yourself in forgiving another person. Number four, we need to be delivered from evil. So temptation is the doorway to evil. Evil exists not only in our own lives, but in the world around us. I think that most of the stuff that we pray for actually falls into this category. Um, because most of the stuff that we pray about is reflective of the brokenness of our world. And um, sometimes we hear that word evil, and we think like maniacal, supervillain-type evil. We think uh, holocaust-type evil. But our, our world is filled with evil. It's, evil is anything that is counter to the way of Christ. Evil is not just mass violence. Evil is not just genocide. Evil is my kind of silent hatred of other people. You can make a big list. I think this is most of the stuff we pray about. I think sickness in our world is a result of the fall. I think death in our world is a result of the fall. This is all a result of the effects of evil in our world. A natural question that comes up for people here is this, does God tempt people? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we could spend a lot of time looking at various passages of scripture, but the short answer is this, God tests, but he does not tempt to sin. God tests, but he does not tempt to sin. So God does put us under pressure so that our faith is tested and so that we have to put our trust in Him. I think this is the primary way that God grows us. When you start looking at the language that is used around the subject of discipleship in the New Testament, most of it is negative language. We talk about this a lot in our coaching program, um, but it's language like, you are being refined, you are being pruned Like it's all of this stuff has to be cut off. Stuff has to be burned out. It has to be made new. The old man has to be like kind of peeled off and and the new man has to be taken on. Um, One of the great metaphors, Justin and I talk about this a lot, but one of the great metaphors from uh, the Chronicles of Narnia series is there's this character in the books uh, who's a cousin of the children in the books named Eustace. And Eustace is, just like this bratty kid. And in one of the books, he is transformed into a dragon. And he becomes a dragon. He can't speak. Um, And and finally, Aslan, who is the like Christ figure in the Narnia books, um, finally Aslan takes him to this pool. And Aslan tells him to take his skin off. And there is this scene where he begins to like rip at his chest. And, and he literally, he's a, he's a dragon and he rips his skin off. And, and the book says that he, he like sees like his kind of exoskeleton. He sees his skin like laying there on the ground. And, and he goes, Man, that was hard, but I, but I did it. And then he looks down at himself and he realizes he's still a dragon. And so he does it again. He peels off another layer of skin and there's the skin laying there. And he looks down and he's still a dragon. And so he does it a third time, and and he's still a dragon. And then Aslan says, I have to do it. And so then the lion takes his claws and goes deep. And it says, for the first time, it really hurt. And he rips off the dragon costume and the dragon skin, and, and there's this little boy again. And so the metaphor is this. You can try to do this stuff. You can try to peel off the old man and take on the new man, to use Paul's language, but you can't do it, right? He's the only one who can truly go deep and really peel it back. But if you aren't willing to go with him on that journey, it won't happen. We need to be delivered from evil. And the Bible teaches that this is how we ultimately grow up into Christ. So he will test us. He will refine us. He will prune us. He will grow us. But he will not tempt us to sin. That's the work of the enemy. And that is the work of our own flesh as well. God is not seeking to lure us into sin by any stretch of the imagination. So I think the real prayer here is that God would both remove temptation from our lives and also strengthen us with faith through the power of the Spirit when we are tempted. So think about Jesus and Peter. One of the things that Jesus says to Peter early on is um, that Satan desires to sift him like wheat. He says this very kind of strange, enigmatic thing to him. Satan desires to sift you like wheat. And then later on, Jesus tells Peter that Peter is going to deny Jesus. And Peter goes, there's no way this is going to happen. So Jesus knew that Peter would be tempted to deny him. Jesus does not stop any of that stuff from happening. Peter denies Christ. He ultimately repents and becomes the one on whom the church is built. This was, I think, a part of Peter's development into a fully formed disciple. And so the point here for me is we cannot underestimate the value and importance of failure in our lives. Failure is critical because we grow and learn and develop in the midst of failure. And um, gosh, we're about out of time. Let's do this last thing. Notice that this is not a personal prayer. This is like a community prayer. All of the pronouns are collective. It's all our and us. So when you pray, are you praying only for you? Is it all about you? Does your prayer life revolve around you? If you're like me, it probably does. Or are you praying for the community, both both locally and globally, like, like think about the flu. You can't just pray, Lord, please help me to not get the flu. You also need to pray, Lord, please help my family to not get the flu. And, and Lord, please help my church family and my family at work not to get the flu. Like it, the collective, the community affects you ultimately. So this can't just be about you. So, hopefully, um, this is a helpful reminder to all of us. And, and so, here's what I want to do as we close out this time I, I want us to try to put this into practice. Let's take just a few minutes in silence. I, I want you to do what I was talking about at the beginning. I want you to, like, just mentally, slowly walk through the words of this prayer in your mind kind of rolling them over in your head, contemplating what they mean. Pray this prayer, just kind of slowly piece through it. We're going to take a few minutes in silence to do this, and then I will lead us in praying this prayer out loud together. Let's do that now.